The idea of growth happens very early in Scripture in Genesis, where when God creates the world, everything works after this illustration of a seed going into the ground. And then it grows and it bears fruit after its kind. That's just not for the natural world. Because when God created Adam and Eve, what did he tell them? Be fruitful, bear fruit, multiply, fill the earth. As my friend Andy Crouch likes to say, God has given us the raw ingredients necessary, but he wants us to put them together to make something of this world. We have a contribution to give, and so God wants us to grow. This theme goes all through Scripture. I won't give you all the verses. Psalm 1, probably the most famous. The blessed man, the man who's blessed. There's certain things he does. There's certain things he doesn't do, but it says he's like a tree planted by the rivers of living water bears fruit in every season of his life, no matter what he's going through. This is what God wants us to be. He wants us to be trees planted by living waters. Jesus came along, and Jesus told a parable about the soils. He said when the seed of God's word goes into good soil, fertile soil, like all of you men, what happens? 30, 60, 100-fold. Some of you are 30. Some of you are 60. Some of you are a pepper plant. Some of you are a tomato plant. Some of you are a big oak tree. See, it's not volume, it's the, it's, the, it's the gifts God has given you and what you make of it that one day you'll hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Paul said to the church in Galatia, chapter 4, verse 19, he said, I labor again and again in birth for you, listen, until Christ would be formed in you. Paul said, this is why I do ministry, that Christ would be formed in you. I'm going to give you a phrase I heard at 30 years old from Edwin Lewis Cole. He's deceased now. He said, Christ-likeness and manhood are synonymous. You guys got that? Christ-likeness and manhood are synonymous. There is no model of a man that we can follow in the world. Bono, Wentz, Brady, Timberlake. I mean, we can go on and on, right? These are all men that are emulated. But the Bible says Christ is the man that we follow. He's the God-man. And Christ-likeness and manhood are synonymous. So very quickly, and uh, you know the package you got when you checked in that you threw in your dresser after you got your name badge out? Uh, Actually has these 10 things listed, so you'll be surprised if you find that somewhere someday. (laughs) Let's talk about The 10 things I know about spiritual growth, they are not in order, but they're pretty close. Number one, this might be an eye-opener. Spiritual growth is primarily your responsibility. Spiritual growth is primarily my responsibility in my life. Now, I'm preaching to the choir today because you came on a retreat. You invested in your spirituality, and that's wonderful. Uh, I say this every year. You guys should put this. The first thing you should put on your calendar is this retreat. There are leadership conferences I go to. First thing on my calendar, everything works around that because that's a spiritual infusion for me and something that I need. Now, I learned this at an early age. You know, I grew up in a dysfunctional family, and I know that's something people talk about. Listen, we were dysfunctional before it was popular, okay, before reality shows existed. And I had to grow up pretty quick. And I was at a Jimmy Lyon basketball camp. He was the coach at St. Joe's at the time. And I was 12 years old, and at the end of the camp, he sat all the campers down. And he said, here's what's going to happen. He goes, some of you want to make your high school team, and you will. And some of you want to go to college, and few will do that. And almost nobody will make the NBA. He said, but here's what's going to happen. 
when you're 20 and 30 years old, you, there's going to be guys on bar stools, restaurants, wherever, who are going to tell you how great of an athlete they were, but they never played on a high school or college team because the coach or the school did something wrong to them. Now, can I tell you how many times I've listened to that story? Can I tell you how many times guys told me how great they were, but some coach screwed them or some school messed them up? I learned at an early age that it was going to take grit, hard work, if I was going to go to the places I wanted to go in basketball. Now, let's go to our spiritual life. Some of you are thinking, Pastor Bob, this is kind of antithesis of everything I've ever learned at both of these churches because we believe grace changes everything. Listen, Dallas Willard said, grace isn't opposed to working, it's opposed to earning. We didn't earn our way into this. But what did Paul say? He said, it's Christ in me, the hope of glory, right? Christ living in me. And then Paul's almost schizophrenic. He comes over here, he says, now you gotta buffet your body. Titus says, grace has appeared to us, teaching us in these last days how to live righteously and godly and soberly in this generation. So John Maxwell probably uh, really opened my eyes to this when he talked about the art of self-leadership, and he drew a circle. And he said, when most of us think of leadership, we think of down, right? For those of you who are managers or even your family, you know, you're leading your kids, you're leading your employees. Anything you lead, you're basically telling what people to do. You're coaching, whatever. And we always think leadership is down. How do I move people from here to there, right? Then he opened my eyes and he said, well, there's this thing called leading up, which I never understood. Leading up is there are people above you that have the resources you need to get done what you need to get done, and you have to lead them well. That's really an art. Uh, Nehemiah did this, right? Friend comes to him, Jerusalem's in ruins, the wall's broken down, and he weeps and he cries and he prays, but he doesn't just do that. He goes to Artaxerxes the king, and he gets letters, and he gets a leave of absence, and he gets money. He had a lead up to a foreign pagan king. But here's the eye-opener. John Maxwell said 50% of all our leadership is leading ourselves. And then he said the hardest person you'll ever lead is you. The man in the mirror is the hardest person to lead. He's selfish. Uh, he's ambitious. He's cranky. He's moody. The man in the mirror is a tough guy. Uh, Maxwell said, self-leadership is the ability to make a few key wise decisions early and over a course of a lifetime and then manage them daily. Think about that. Um, Matt Mayer touched on pornography. Now, every time we do a men's retreat, uh, we get all our pastors together and we say, what do you want to do in the breakout section? And I can set my watch. Let's do a breakout on pornography, Right? Let's do a breakout on marriages. Marriages are all bad, right? We go through all the problems. I said, guys, why don't we exalt Christ and let all those problems go away? Why don't, why don't we do that, right? Now, Matt touched on pornography. Major problem. People think it's going to be the ruination of the church. Major problem in our day, right? But Matt also talked about not making provision for the flesh. Matt talked about advanced decision-making, right? You know, Proverbs says you don't wait till you get to the harlot's room where she's perfumed all her, you know, covers and stuff. You don't do it. You make an advanced decision and set your life up that you never get in that situation. You learn to lead yourself. You live by values. 
Maxwell said, you make them early, you manage them daily. Textbook case of this is the prophet Daniel. By the way, if you're worrying about time, I'll spend more time on this one than the other nine. That Daniel chapter 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And because you're American, you have no idea what that means. Can you imagine somebody coming in and leveling the White House, the Pentagon, and everything we know, the Statue of Liberty? Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and, and he just plunders, and he takes the best and brightest of Israel. And he, and he brings them to Babylon, a foreign land with a foreign language and foreign gods. And he takes Daniel and his friends, this subset of, of kids that are 16, 17 years old. He's going to put them through his program so they would be emissaries back to the land so he would have a puppet regime there. And they offer them the wine and everything on the king's table. Listen what Daniel does. This is remarkable. He purposed in his heart. He made an advanced decision that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Somebody raised this kid well. Here's what's remarkable about Daniel. He made a decision not to do this, I think, before he got to Babylon. He's just managing it here. And he makes a decision in a place, listen, where no one would have ever known. No one would have ever found out. He could have indulged. He could have lived the high life. No one would have ever known, but he knew God would know. And he purposed in his heart. And listen to what happens. And God always does this. Verse 9 says, God brought Daniel in the favor and goodwill with the chief of the eunuchs. You know the story. He rises to prime minister. He's ten times smarter than everyone in the program and has this amazing relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, who I believe becomes a believer. I really do. It's remarkable. Now, the seasons of life ebb and flow. Darius comes along. He's a mead. He's the new king. And his guys talk him into a situation where if you don't bow down to a statue, or if you worship any other god but, but the god of Darius, this Persian god, you're going to be thrown to the lions. And so Daniel has another choice to make. Uh, watch what he does. This is a remarkable when Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went home in his upper room with his windows open towards Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees three times that day, right? Isn't that what we would all do? Right? Death warrant sign, we pray. Listen to this phrase. He knelt down and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom from early days. Daniel didn't pray in a pinch. This was Daniel's habit. That's what a custom is. It's a habit. Jesus had a habit. You know what it was? He was in a synagogue every Sabbath. The gospel writer says, as was his custom. Self-leadership. No one told Daniel to pray. No one told Daniel not to eat of the king's delicacies. Daniel made an advanced decision, and God honored it. Uh, Self-leadership, I think, one of the most important things we can ever do and um, it has served me well all of my life, uh, the habits that, that God has uh, led me to and the things that I've learned. Now, before we leave this, there, there's one little tricky thing. You know, Michael Card had a wonderful mentor in William Lane. That's beautiful. 
The problem is we live in kind of a blame culture today, a therapy culture, right, where if life didn't work out, I blame my parents, I blame the pastor, I blame the church, I blame... And now, and now it seems like everybody wants a mentor, right? Like if I don't get mentored, I'm not going to turn out well. Um, one pastor wrote an axiom called Obi-Wan Kenobi's Not for Hire. He said that people will actually show up at his church, at his car, waiting for him at the end of the day, asking if they could mentor under him. And he said, here's the truth. This all-powerful, all-knowing person that has all the answers, Obi-Wan Kenobi, is not for hire. I had to mentor from afar. Now, I had wonderful people in my life, the beauty of community, but, but most of the people that mentored me are in those books, and I don't even know who they are. And I had to get on trains and buses and meet people. Now, maybe God has put a mentor in your life, and we should be mentoring here. It's a beautiful thing. But never let mentoring be an excuse for not growing spiritually. In first, uh, excuse me, in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, it says, David was greatly distressed. This is Ziklag. The enemy has burned the whole encampment, and uh, he was distressed. Why? Because the people were talking about stoning him. That'll, that's a leadership crisis. Because all the people were grieved, every man and his sons, because all the wives were taken away. The whole city was burned. You know what the verse says? David strengthened himself in God. These mighty men, these ragtag guys, the last stand, had all left Daniel, and from the wells of salvation, he strengthened himself in God. Guys, it's 2018. What steps can you take to lead yourself well? Got an email from somebody at church last night. Pastor Bob, I'm drowning in debt. Uh, it's, it's killing my marriage. What can we do? Right? And so I wrote back, hey, we're doing Financial Peace University. We've gotten people out of half a million dollars of debt. Uh, finance is a big deal, guys. You've got a ball and chain of finances. You're not going to have a great spiritual life. Marriage, time management, your career. This is January. Think about how you can lead yourself this year and grow spiritually. Now, one of the ways you can grow spiritually is number two. Second thing I know about spiritual growth is you must practice spiritual disciplines. Now, some of you are thinking, spiritual disciplines, what's that? Listen, it's simple. It's prayer, fasting, Bible reading. It's more than that. It's solace, solitude, contemplative reading, uh, simplicity. We can go on and on. There's about 18 disciplines. These are very important in our lives. Uh, Michael Carr talked about Jesus in Mark where he had to steal away to a quiet place, right? That's solitude, that's prayer, that's spiritual disciplines. Uh, I gave an illustration last week uh, when I was teaching about it's the difference between marinating and microwaving, right? We live in this instant culture of hyper-stimulation and continuous entertainment, right? To where when you fly on a plane now, you watch five minutes of this movie and five minutes of that movie and five minutes of this movie and two minutes of this song and nothing holds our attention, right? The spiritual disciplines are a way of slowing down our intellectual metabolism, getting all the junk out of us. And then the key to this retreat, at least the takeaway for me, is to hear from God. One of the ways you can hear from God, I love what Michael Card said, read volumes of Scripture. Read the whole book of Mark. But guys, at my church, no, I talk about Scripture saturation. Read Romans 8 for a year. It'll change your life. Read the book of James. We just finished James, 100 verses. 
There's no one plan. The plan is, can you hear the voice of God? We're not reading for information. It's wonderful. We're not reading devotionally. It's wonderful. We're reading so that God can speak to us individually. If you came to my house and I said, hey, come on over. We're going to have steaks. We're going to have a good time. We'll sit on the deck. And you walked in and you're like, I don't smell steak. What's going on? Is Bob ordering out? What's going on? And if I told you, oh, don't worry about it. I just looked it up on the Internet. We're, we're going to put steaks in the microwave. It takes six minutes. It's going to be amazing, right? You'd be like, oh, my gosh. But if I told you I marinated it for three days, some of you are thinking about steak and Maine right now. If I told you I marinated it for three days, you would be thinking this is going to be a great meal. Look, we have to marinate in the things of God. No one's going to grow really quick, right? The abnormal growth in Scripture is always bad. It's always evil. Growth is always slow, right? Jesus told a parable about a man who put seed in the ground, and he worked by day, and he slept by night, and it grew, and he knew not how. But the blade came, then the ear, and a farmer knows if there's anything about growth, it takes time. The one thing the disciples asked Jesus about, it's the only thing they asked him about is, Lord, can you teach us how to pray? They didn't ask that he would teach them how to preach or lead a great organization. They said, Lord, can you teach us how to pray? Why? Because they saw something about his life. First of all, he was gone before they got up. And he could stay awake when they slept. And he saw the power during the day. And it really was the secret sauce to his life. And they said, Lord, you've got to teach us to pray. Now, one of the problems with spiritual disciplines is some of us have come from legalistic backgrounds where it's drudgery. John Piper has coined a phrase that I love. It's called Christian hedonism where we delight ourselves in God. Piper said, my shortest summary of it is this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The shorter catechism said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yeah. I loved when David Brickner talked about the feast. It's like one of the sweet spots of mine. And the idea that they were forced to rejoice is beautiful. That's why we come to this retreat and we play basketball and we eat and we joke and we laugh and we have sessions because God is fun for us. Now, we go through sorrowful times and, and those things. Piper said the problem is not that we want to be satisfied, but we're too easily satisfied. It's like Lewis said, right? Well, the reason why we can bang pots and pans like a little toddler is because we don't know what a holiday at the sea is like. Spiritual disciplines open you to a world with God that makes everything else pale in comparison. So spiritual disciplines are important. They're not drudgery. E.M. Bounds, who's written the most on prayer of anyone I know, said prayer should not be uh, relegated as a duty which must be performed, but as a privilege to be enjoyed, a rare delight that always uh, uh, reveals some new beauty, some new thing about God. Uh, if you have never really looked at the spiritual disciplines, let me give you a couple book recommendations. I think there's two back there. Dallas Willard, The Spirit of the Disciplines. John Orberg has written The Life You've Always Wanted. And Richard Foster, probably the premier book, The Celebration of Discipline. 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 to 8 says, Reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself to godliness. Why? Ebo, elder, Matt Stokes, some other guys, uh, exercise prophets little. 
bodily exercise profits little. <laughs> but exercise yourself unto godliness. Look, I'm not against exercise. I think it's great. The idea is we've got to work out our faith with fear and trembling. Third thing you can do uh, for spiritual growth is join a prevailing church and put deep roots down. Again, speaking to the choir, right? You guys have a church home, I would assume. I would assume it's one of our two churches. But if there's anybody here that's church shopping or church jumping or listening on the internet, look, you need to join a prevailing church. What in the world is a prevailing church? Jesus took his guys on a two-day journey. Michael Carr talked about it. Up to Caesarea Philippi, one of my favorite stops in Israel. There's a big rock outcropping there, and there's grottos where the god Pan and Athene Nike were there, and it was called the Gates of Hell. It was a very secular area. Her and Philip uh, had jurisdiction over it. And Jesus took his men really like in the heart of Las Vegas, and he said, who do men say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, the prophet. Who do you say that I am? Peter has this wonderful declaration. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, Peter, flesh and blood isn't revealed to that to you. That's a revelation from heaven. And upon that revelation that I am the Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. What Jesus said is you're going to go out and play offense, not defense. You're going to go in the places you never would have dreamed, like Rome, and the gospel is going to prevail. Never doubt the power of the word of God. Listen, if, you, if any preacher thinks his illustration has the power or his story, he's crazy. Because Peter said it's the seed of the word of God. It's the only thing that can change a heart and a mind. Now, illustrations and stories are wonderful. They're like light. They're like windows in a the house. They let the light in, okay? But Peter knew the power of the gospel Prevailing churches are churches, listen guys, that are kingdom-minded. And when a church isn't kingdom-minded, you know what happens? All the committees and all the leaders want to keep all the sheep in the pen. That's their whole premise. Let's keep everybody happy. Let's do everything everybody wants. Kingdom-minded churches say, no, we're going to preach the word. I like what Craig Rochelle says. We're going to do everything short of sin to reach people who are far from God. That's a prevailing church. That's a church playing offense. Here's a list of things the church has prevailed against in 2,000 years. Judaism, the Roman Empire, paganism, communism, capitalism, the theory of evolution, humanistic philosophy, dictatorship, science. Science isn't bad, but, the, you know, the science that tells us we're bad. Um, new age, modernity, Islam. I mean, I can go on and on. All these things were supposed to be the death knell of the church. The church is expanding. Jesus said it was like leaven. Can't stop it. It's an unstoppable force. The church should be a place that's irresistible because Jesus is irresistible. The church is irresistible when his presence is there, when he's glorified, when the lost are coming in. Not when we're trying to keep everybody happy and all the sheep in the pen. Here's why church is important. Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider one another and stir one another in love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another till the final day. Jesus had a custom of showing up at the synagogue. And I say this all the time. You might come to church and nothing happens. But there may day, be a day when something does happen. What if that man at the pool of Siloam didn't show up? He was there 38 years. What if he thought, you know, today I'm not going to go? Right? 
I was in our bookstore last year. Two, two teenagers or young guys were in the bookstore. I love to see young guys. Hey, can I make a recommendation for you? What do you guys like to read? We talked for a while. I kind of knew who they were and asked them what they were doing. And then one kid said, well, I go to Murrieta Calvary Chapel Bible College. I said, yeah, but it's like late September. Why are you here? He said, well, I don't have the money to go back. My parents aren't believers. They don't support it. I said, can you be here Tuesday at 9 o'clock? He said, sure. Comes in Tuesday at 9 o'clock, and I said, uh, we have this thing called Sizzling Summer, and it's a long work day, 9 in the morning or like 10 at night. I said, can you work every single Wednesday of Sizzling Summer? He said, yeah. I said, here's your check for your tuition. Now, listen, Muriette is really cheap, so don't think it was a lot of money. It's not Harvard. But before he got out of my office, this is what I said to him. I said, you came to church, and look what happened. What if you stayed home today? What if you were mad at God? What if you grumbled? Now, look, I'm not saying you can't take off and do something else on a Sunday. What I'm saying is, after a while, it's not only what you're receiving, it's what you're bringing, it's what you're giving. Jim Maxim, who did our devotions and led the prayer, he has sent more people on retreats, more kids on missions trips. He's bought computers, and he's done. And I could tell a story like that of so many people in our church because we need each other, and when you're part of a prevailing church, there's nothing like it. Another, another, number four for growth, discover your spiritual gifts. If I walked up and down the aisle and said, what's your name, could you tell me your top three spiritual gifts? If you couldn't, I don't know how you're going to function. So we live in an age where the church is really becoming amazing, right? It's because leaders lead, givers give, Singers sing, right? What if we just said, hey, anybody want to sing this weekend, right? No, we got gifted people playing and singing. So you have to know what your spiritual gifts are. Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. So here's what we do in church. We get up here and we say, uh, we need greeters. Anybody want to greet? People are like, wow, I don't know. Uh, heard one guy said, you know how you find greeters? Find the 10 friendliest people in your church and go up and say, you're starting to greet starting next week. He said, you'll have wonderful greeters. Bob Pisco knows his gift. A lot of you know your gift. If you don't know your gift, there's spiritual gift tests. Now, um, here's, a, here's a weird thing about using your spiritual gifts. Whenever you use your spiritual gift, if it's your top gift, let's say your gift is evangelism. I've watched these people. They enjoy the whole process. They like making an initial contact with someone, which scares a lot of us to death. Uh, they like trying to convince people. They like praying with people. And then they love saying the prayer at the end. They love the whole process. If you have a teaching gift, you love to study as much as you love to preach, right? So here's what I find in a church. This is probably what's going to happen. You're going to jump in just because you're excited somewhere. So I did that at 21. Believe it or not, there was a thing in the bullet that says, uh, we need ushers. So I showed up at 21 years old and said, I want to usher, right? I was an all-American basketball player. I had tons of gifts. I, man, I'll usher. I'll do anything. And then you do that for a while and you say, well, gosh, I think I have more gifts. And then I became a youth pastor. 24, 25, that kind of more fit what I was akin to. And then finally landed as a home Bible teacher, which led me to what I'm doing now. Most people make three jumps before they say, that's my sweet spot. So 
I had a pastor who used to keep lead under his pulpit, and he would make an announcement, and he said, if anyone needs to feel lead, come up and touch the lead. Sometimes we just need something done, but you'll eventually, Jeff Kinney found his sweet spot, right? He just took 30 Catholic kids to Samaritan's Purse, and you got to hear these stories, right? But it's taken Jeff a while, right? So, you need to spirit, find your spiritual gifts, and then you need to use them. You don't need to walk around the church telling the pastor how gifted you are and what you're going to do someday. You need to use your spiritual gifts, and we talked about men in service. It's a beautiful thing. The fifth thing I know about spiritual growth is you're going to have to master the art of gratitude. Master the art of gratitude. Psalm 136 says, give thanks to the Lord of lords. His faithfulness and love endures forever. Give thanks to him who alone does mighty miracles. Give thanks, give thanks. The whole psalm is give thanks to the Lord. Giving thanks means, Lord, I am grateful. Michael Card. Michael Card. Advanced decision making. To get up every morning and thank God for your limbs and food. It's pretty amazing, right? G.K. Chesterton, here lies another day with all its wonder and beauty. He said, here's the amazing thing. Why do I get two, right? That's the heart of gratitude, not the heart of entitlement. And Voskamp, first woman that will be requoted on this retreat. She's written a book called A Thousand Gifts, New York Times bestseller. She says, ultimately, in his essence, think about this, Satan is an ingrate. And he sinks his venom into the hearts of Eden. Satan's sin becomes the first sin of all humanity. And then she said, the sin of ingratitude. Adam and Eve are simply painfully ungrateful for what God gave them. Wow. And what did he give them? Everything. Everything. Like any good parent, he had boundaries and borders of restrictions for their protection. And it wasn't enough. And goes on to say, we are lured by the deception that there was more to a full life. There's more to see. There's more I deserve. That's called a midlife crisis, by the way. I deserve a prettier wife, a faster car, more money. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. And I think we've talked a lot about what you really deserve. Yeah. God's grace is that he has given us everything. So guess what God put on my heart? It Two years ago, took me two years of wrestling to execute the first one. I started a series of what I call gratitude dinners. The first gratitude dinner is I took four couples out who over the course of the last 15 years have helped my family navigate the storms of life. Now, here's what I mean. So I left the Boeing company after 12 and a half years and ventured out in ministry and knew that, you know, doing things for my family would be a little more difficult. These families all came along at different times and at different times helped us on the journey in ways that just got us to the next place. So we went to a really nice restaurant, and we're sitting there, and I said, hey, you guys are probably wondering what's going on. They're like, yeah, is Monica pregnant? Like, what in the world's going on? I'm like, no, thank God. And we ordered, and I literally spent an hour and went around to each individual and thanked them for exactly what they had done to get us to this place. And what is amazing, if you know me, my wife is usually the one that's good at this stuff. 
And I think more, most of the people around the table were shocked that it was me, but it was something God's called me to do. And there's a series of these gratitude dinners that I'm going to execute in the coming years that might be a good idea for you. The sixth thing I know about spiritual growth is you have to embrace the seasons. You know, Jesus talked about those who get out of the gate and when the cares of this world and deceitfulness of riches and the things of life come, it chokes the word and they kind of get sidelined. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 says to everything there's a season, there's a time and purpose for everything under heaven. Time to be born, a time to die, you know, a time for this, a time for that, the whole chapter, right? Solomon was the wisest man who had ever lived. Uh, he wrote four books of the Bible, then transgressed all of his wisdom. And he went on this quest to find meaning in life, and he said it was like vanity. It was like chasing after the wind, kind of like what Matt Mayer said. It was empty, right? And he looks at life under the sun, life from this world's perspective, and then he has one brief and shining moment where he looks at life under heaven. And he says, oh, I get it. God has made everything beautiful in its time. And there's a purpose for everything under heaven. And God's put eternity in our hearts. That's why we're restless. If you're going to make it in life, you're going to have to know, Romans 8, 26, that God is working through all the seasons for your good. Nothing's ever going to separate you from Jesus Christ. There's going to be ebbs and flows, desert and dry experiences, and dark night of the soul. You're going to experience times where the heavens are brass. It might be because you're in sin. It might be because God's withdrawing himself. God's weaning you off what's familiar. In Isaiah 6, it says in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord. Isaiah had been king for 40 years, the only king Isaiah had ever known. As long as Uzziah was there, he was comfortable. When Uzziah was off the throne, he had to see God again. Some of you have been ripped out of churches. Some of you have been downsized. It's a chance to see the Lord. It's painful. We're all going to go through the winter of our Christian experience. We love the spring. We love the seasons. We love the summer. We love... No one likes the fall or winter of their Christian experience. Uh, I went through one several years ago. I was out of ministry for four years. Our family just went through a season where several of us had some pretty tough times. We're coming out of that. Um, you're always in a season, guys. Always in a season. And just know God's working in it, and you're going to come out the other side. Number seven, read widely. Um, leaders are readers. Uh, you need to read the Bible. Um, I love to read books. Books are my friends. Uh, everybody on that table is my friend. They just don't know it. Uh, I've been out to lunch with them, dinner with them, pick their brain. I mean, uh, everything I know, I know because I've read it somewhere. And I look on my shelf and I think, wow. And, and you know, I've always read, but my appetite for reading was really kind of wet in uh in my economics class, where I walked in and um, the teacher said, you know, don't buy your textbook, but go out and get this brand new book by Tom Peters called In Search of Excellence. It was kind of the forerunner of all these leadership management books. And I read that book and probably have bought every, I'm a leadership junkie, I've bought every book since, but it really has strengthened the soul of my leadership. Warren Buffett said he reads 500 pages a day of everything. He's 80. Five years old, right? He's a billionaire. Uh, one CEO was asked in a conversation, uh, do you know the biggest problem and crisis among CEOs? And his answer was, they don't read enough. 
Now, I know some of you aren't fond of reading. There's other ways to ingest things into your spirit. There's the Bible on, you know, whatever it's on, streaming or tape or whatever it is today. Uh, Bill Gates, again, could sit back and relax. He has listened to over 250 great courses. You know what they are? You ever see those ads, great courses like from Harvard and Yale and all these places on chemistry and stuff? Here's a guy who has the rigor to challenge himself. Well, we need the rigor to challenge ourselves spiritually and grow. Ecclesiastes 12.11 says the words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. The Bible's the greatest book, but God has given people the gift of interpreting it and giving it in bite-sized chunks for you. The Ethiopian eunuch was asked, do you understand Isaiah? And he said, no, unless somebody tells me. So, again, hopefully this year you would make it your goal. If you're not a reader, maybe you'd read one book, two books. If you're a reader, read more books. Uh, But we need to read. The eighth thing I know about spiritual growth is that you should go on a mission trip or Bible tour every five years. Every five years. One of the reasons you need to go is because it builds community. Uh, Getting with a group of 20, 30, 50, 10, whatever it is, invested in the work of God, uh, you'll be friends for life. I'm sitting out at these tables, and even in our cafe at church, I'll say, how do you guys know each other? Well, we went to Israel together. Or Jeff, all your friends, right, built stuff all around the world, right? Uh, My guys that I played basketball with in college, we went to war for four years, right? It's just something special about it. You also need to see the rest of the world. You need to walk in the slums of Kibera or some other place and see how devastating the evil one has made this world. And it makes the things we're going through pale in comparison. Uh, The beautiful thing about traveling is you see the church is one. I've preached in churches with chickens running around. I've preached in black churches, open air churches, small churches, big churches. And at the end of the day, we're one big tribe, one big family. It's revelation for every kindred, every tribe, every tongue. I've worshipped in every arena you can imagine. It's beautiful. Number nine, guard your own soul. I was sitting on a beach with a guy who runs a ministry, recovery ministry to heroin addicts. And he said, Pastor Bob, one question, and then we'll just have a lot of fun this weekend. One ministry question. What's the greatest piece of advice you can give me? I didn't even think. Reflexively, don't lose your own soul. When I marry people, I say, the goal of marriage is this. Right now, you have nothing but your love for one another. If you can come back to me 20 years from now and still have that, you have everything. Christianity can jade you. There's people that are going to wrong you. You're going to see leaders fall. I mean, the devil's going to throw everything but the kitchen sink at you. Leaders are going to disappoint you. Men are going to fail you. Things aren't going to turn out the way you like. And if you're not strengthening your soul in God, if you're not practicing self-leadership, you're going to lose your soul. Dallas Willard said, your soul is what integrates your will, your mind, thoughts and feelings, values, and your body into a single life. A soul is healthy, well-ordered when there is harmony between these three entities and God is inherent in all of that creation. When you are connected with God and others, right, Didn't Bonhoeffer say we need a day with God and a day with others? Dallas said, you have a healthy soul. 
You're vibrant. Two books I recommend on this are Ordering Your Private World. We sold out of it. Gordon McDonald was here three years ago. And Soul Keeping by John Ortberg. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world in exchange for his soul? It's very important. Finally, number 10 is learn to appreciate all the streams. Sitting with a man last night who's new to our church. He goes to Kenya. He's been going for five years. He said the first time he got there, he preached to them how tribalism is wrong. Tribalism is they're all black, but they're all from tribes, so they have this inner conflict, right? Something we don't understand. He said halfway through the sermon, he said, what am I talking about? The church is the most tribal entity on the planet. Can you imagine telling somebody from Mars, we love Christ, we're the body of Christ, and we have 300 denominations? Now, you can look at it another way. Denominations are beautiful, right? And, and I know the history of denominations. God pulled a people out of a people out of a people, right? The problem is we keep the old going instead of going with the new wineskin. That's basically the problem. But Chuck Smith, the, the founder of Calvary Chapel, said, it's like Baskin-Robbins. There's 31 flavors, right? So Andy Crouch, one of, one of my favorite guys to read and listen to, he's a progressive thinker, he goes to a high liturgical Episcopalian church. I wouldn't even walk in the door, right? Michael Carr talked about black churches. We, there's all kinds of churches. We have to learn to appreciate the streams. So I got saved in the charismatic stream. It was a beautiful stream. Uh, we learned to believe God for great things. You know, I was filled with the Spirit. I spoke in tongues. Uh, we prayed for people. There was healing. It was wonderful. But with too much of that, we hunger for the Word of God. And so we found Calvary Chapel, and that was the Word-centered stream. That's great, right? So we go through the Word. We learn the full counsel of God's Word. Then there's the contemplative stream. These are the people that, again, spiritual disciplines are important. Uh, uh, Brooklyn Tabernacles, a prayer stream. Hillsong's a worship stream. So in our church, we embrace the streams. Now, are there problems in all those movements? Yeah. But the last time I looked, Jesus walked through the churches and told them their problems. I hear way too many sermons where the guy who's preaching spends the first 20 minutes saying, everybody else is wrong, now let me tell you how it works. There's people that talk about Hillsong and then sing their songs. Here's the problem when you focus on one stream. Isaiah said the grass withers, the flower fades. It's only the word of God that endures forever. By the way, if you're trying to get all of your nourishment out of one man, that's another mistake. If Tim Keller, John MacArthur, Matt Stokes, if somebody is the guy that you get everything out of, they're going to let you down. And that's a mistake because they're only one gift. There's many gifts that you need to listen to. That's why this weekend we try and give you a, you know, a wide breadth of expression. I used to love James Montgomery Boyce, 10th Presbyterian Church downtown Philadelphia. I go down there on Sunday night, sit in the balcony. One of the greatest expositors of the Word of God, but here's something no one knew. He looked like an egghead, right? Uh, he, he was scholarly, and he looked like that. But, the, but my son won't remember this. My son was like nine or even younger, and I took my son down on a Sunday night, and James Montgomery Boyce, he would stand there until everybody left, and when I introduced myself to him. He got down on his knee and he introduced himself to my son. He was a pastor's pastor. 
But I remember we would go to his reform conference, right? Because he would bring in great thinkers. And um, those guys, you know, we would go every year, about five or six of us. And one year we were late. We, you know, we had trouble with parking. And we get in. And you know the deal in church, right? The whole first row is open. So we get ushered right up to the front. And this is about worship. And he's preaching out of Psalm 150. And he says, worship God on the high cymbals. He said, that'll never happen here. And worship God on all the instruments. He goes, that'll never happen here. And he goes through the whole thing. And he says, you know, here's the problem. We have 7-Eleven music today. Seven words repeated 11 times. Contemporary chorus is right, what we sing. And he goes, all this stuff comes from California. And here we are, you know. Calvary Chapel came from California, and we're like sinking on the front row. But the amazing thing is we walked in and sang those hymns, and they were so rich. And I thought, oh, my gosh, we're probably the freest people in this room. Not bragging, but we're probably the freest people in this room. The streams are wonderful. The monastic movement was wonderful. Now, we couldn't stay there. It wasn't meant for everybody. But if you spend your life bashing the streams, you're probably bashing something God has raised up. Guys, I want to end in Mark 11, or excuse me, 16. The verse I told you to turn to. And I'll give you one final thought. Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Michael Carr told you Peter and Mark's gospel was action-oriented. And Matthew tells us that Jesus said, go into all the world, but only Peter remembers that there's a lot of action behind that. And he preached, right, the day of Pentecost. Then he and John, you know, a lame man was healed, and they were off and running, and they spoke in other tongues. And in Cornelius' house, they spoke in other tongues. I want to leave you with this. Pastor Steve hit it on the, I don't know how he could have, he, he could have said this last night, but it is so true. Never forget that the thing that we entered into is supernatural. This really is a, a supernatural deal. And blind Bartimaeus, what Michael Card said, that believing produces seeing. You know, I love apologetics. It's all I write about. It's all I talk about. But I tell people, everything I'm telling you, I didn't know Jack when I got saved. All I know is the guy showed me that I was lost and I could be found. And when I got filled with the Spirit and spoke in tongues, guy showed me four verses in Acts. I didn't know anything about it. So we entered this deal by faith, by grace. Everything we know we've learned since. And sometimes learning can cloud the mind. Because at the end of the day, we forget this is a supernatural deal we're involved in. You know, when David Brigner talked about Jesus coming again and, and white horses, people think, are you guys out of your mind? And what they forget is this is a spiritual thing. You know, Peter said that scoffers, skeptics will come in the last days and say, where's the promise of his coming? Are you guys crazy? Jesus said he was coming 2,000 years ago. He said this is what they willfully forget, that God entered human history in the flood and judged the world, and God entered human history in Luke chapter 2 in a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, and he's going to enter human history one final last time. 
Guys, at the end of the day, this isn't academic. This is supernatural. Because the God that said, light be, is the God who is still running the universe. I want to pray for all of you. I'm going to pray that you're going to grow in 2018. I'm going to pray that you're going to grow for the rest of your life. You've invested in this conference. And Jesus said, now go and bear much fruit.